smart manufacturing is about process, people first, and then let's solve those kinds of problems that come out of that around smart manufacturing with technology. Because it has to be about stable, repeatable processes and a workforce that is skilled, trained, and empowered to make that step to smart manufacturing. Welcome to Light Data Action, the podcast that's on a mission to help you discover new technology trends and tools and better understand how they affect the world around us. Light Data Action is sponsored and produced by Lumen Technologies, the platform for amazing things. I'm your host, Terry Barbonis, and in each episode, I'll speak with industry executives and thought leaders to discuss how these technologies change the way we do business, how they influence the fourth industrial revolution, and how you can stay ahead of the innovation. If you're ready, let's join the conversation. Hey, everybody. Manufacturers are using technology to digitize and automate activities as a result of the intense push to remain competitive. Now, since 2020 in particular, the manufacturing industry has undergone significant transformation as a result of global disruption. To stay competitive, manufacturers are turning more and more to innovative technologies that boost productivity from sophisticated robotics in R&D labs to computer vision in warehouses. My guest today is someone that is constantly looking at innovation to help enable his business. Vern Childers is the Chief Information Officer of Meyer Tool and Meyer Digital, a leading manufacturing company that utilizes advanced technologies and dynamic manufacturing processes to deliver high-quality products for the aerospace and gas turbine engine industries. Prior to Meyer Tool, Vern served as IT Manager and Global Virtualization Program Leader at Fortune 20 companies, Amazon and General Electric, respectively. Vern, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hi, thanks, Terry. Finally good to chat with you and be here. Vern, do you want to take a few minutes and talk a little more about what you do at Meyer Tool and sort of a little more about what Meyer Tool does specifically within the manufacturing industry? You know, being the CIO, I'm in charge of all IT aspects of the business. So that involves server, storage, networking, help desk, all the way to machine learning, Internet of Things, and manufacturing type technologies. And Meyer Tool Terry is a high-end technical shop that delivers aviation parts and does value-added services to those kind of parts for a vast array of customers. So EDLing, electric discharge machining, is one of our specialties. But right. you know we have welding capabilities and a vast array of other types of processes that we do, primarily in the aviation industry. Right, that's awesome, Vern. You may have seen this. The World Economic Forum maintains a list of what they call lighthouse facilities around the world across industries. And the idea behind a lighthouse facility is it serves as a beacon. In your mind, what does a manufacturer that wants to run a lighthouse facility today, what does that look like in 2022 and beyond? I think some of the lighthouse documentation came out in early March. And as you know, Terry, this space is constantly moving. A few of the key areas that I think 
that really defines these lighthouse facilities are, is the software development lifecycle agile based? And let's talk about connectivity and connected devices. Another hallmark of that, as we were in industry 3.0, we, you know, we did really well to get network and connected devices happening, but what's going on with that data? You know, what's going on with those connected devices? Are they being used for preventative and predictive type manners? All the way to those lighthouse facilities, I really think are you know, in that prescription mode of using those connected devices to actually prescribe actions and functions. And sometimes those are based on machine learning. You can't have no discussion about a lighthouse and these advanced manufacturing centers, unless you're talking about machine learning and some type of artificial intelligence. Those are the quick three that comes to mind. You have to also look at employee capability and also process capability. Since kind of the lighthouse facilities came out, our government actually released a national strategy for advanced manufacturing just recently. And hopefully it's, you know, another goalpost for us U.S.-based manufacturing facilities to kind of shoot for. Sure. So with manufacturers, a lot of the technology and everything they do has tended to be on-premises for a number of reasons. Depending the data that you're trying to analyze and deal with, it needs to be real-time, ultra-low latency, your manufacturing execution systems, and so forth. It seems more and more that manufacturers are starting to push outside of those four walls of their own environment. We see management execution systems. I think I saw a stat 30 35% are now running in cloud, and there's more push into that. So as a manufacturer, when you look at sort of all of these what we call best execution venues, whether it's on-prem, public cloud, private cloud, edge, and so forth. What does that look like for Meyer tool? How do you evaluate and how much of that hybrid environment do you leverage in terms of continuing to be on the edge of, of not only innovation, but optimize your business? The approach that we take at Meyer tool and, and talking to some of my colleagues and um, was out at a conference last week, is you, you have to take every application and every system and do an in-depth analysis on it to make sure, one, it qualifies, and two, those concerns that you mentioned at the start, our MES system, can it handle the latency of moving to a cloud provider? Right, right. And there's just constant challenges. So the approach that we take, and what I'm hearing in the industry right now is, it's not a rush to the cloud as much as it's kind of a, hey, let's slowly walk and take a look at the clouds in the sky and then, you know, make sure it's the right business objective we're trying to solve. And number two, make sure it's the right cloud for the business. Because one of the other constraints that we're on under at Meyer Tool is Department of Defense, International Traffic and Arms Regulations. So we just can't pick any public cloud. And a lot of the government suppliers and government contractors are falling under that regulation. NIST, ITAR, CMMC 1.0, 2.0, the flavor of the week. Right. But it really makes the CIO, IT leaders, and the business take a step back and really assess and independently evaluate each and everything that, you know, is getting moved to the cloud. So 
that's the approach we take. It's probably a little more laborious and takes a little bit longer, but that just gives us the peace of mind that, you know, we're doing the right thing for the business and making the right business decisions. Does manufacturing in general have a cloud first directive, which to me, cloud first was permission to basically consider cloud at, at the top of the tier. And the, and the reason I ask that, Vern, is because I, I did an, a podcast earlier this year with one of the partners at McKinsey, um, and we talked about this idea of cloud first, permission to consider cloud at the top of all the venues. But then there's another term that's more recently come out, which is cloud smart, which is you have a lot of people that said cloud first or cloud everything right from the get-go. And then the realization set in that unless you understand the cloud economics, how you use that data coming in and out of public cloud, that all of a sudden your costs skyrocket. And so cloud smart was a term that was meant to to basically say, let's go back and look at this again and let's do it the way we should have done it. And so that's why I ask, is there almost everybody I talk to now, especially after 2020, has some kind of a cloud first mandate. Is there such a mandate in manufacturing? And if so, I, I'm assuming some manufacturers, and maybe Meyer Tool is in this, you, you define it the way you need to define it based on what's best for your specific business, even though you're under a larger manufacturing umbrella. Is that accurate? I definitely think that's accurate, Terry. And cloud first is is good, but cloud smart makes sense. And I think the manufacturing in the Midwest, and especially my colleagues that I interface and, and talk to, they face some of those kind of constraints that's probably always put us even before 2020 into that cloud smart model just because of regulations or you name it. So I think the answer to your question is manufacturing is probably lagging a little bit behind in that cloud first and more of a traditional, I hate to say a traditional cloud smart model. But I think there's a reason that a majority of those lighthouse facilities are in the EU, Europe. I think of 79, at least, you know, 80 to 85% are, right? Right. And I think that hesitation from manufacturing in the traditional United States that's always been slow for adoption in that area. I'd be interested to think what you think. There seems to be a loose correlation with that. Well, I, I mean, there's other things that we've seen that in some cases may be more prevalent outside of the U.S. and in other cases, more restrictive. I mean, when you talk about things like GDPR when it comes to, you know, data protection and things like that, and it's not like we're not, you know, ramping up if we need to ramp up, we're not kind of keeping at the same pace. But this idea of using other venues, and we talk about cloud, but, you know, we see it from an edge perspective, right? There sure. are use cases today because of ultra low latency and other dynamics that you can really only successfully run on the edge, much like there are still use cases that you can only run. It makes more sense to run in a public cloud. But the thing that I found interesting about cloud first and cloud smart is you had this onslaught, this rush into cloud. And now the more I talk to other CIOs, senior executives and so forth, especially again, coming out of what everybody went through with 2020 and, and forward, there's greater awareness of actually having a cloud economics purview, right? You've done the math, if you will, you've compared and contrast, but then there's also awareness that if we didn't succeed the first time and we understand why we didn't succeed, 
let's go back and you know, with this whole idea of cloud smart, let's go back and take a look at it again. And a lot of what we see with our use cases is in a lot of cases, uh, an application or a process is often broken up where you still have some aspect of it running on premises. You have some aspect of it now more and more running on edge and you have some aspect of it that's still running in public cloud. So I think we're in this environment where it's not an all or nothing, everything public cloud or everything on-prem. It's being able to look at all the execution venues and saying what part belongs where. Absolutely. And I think, I think cloud smartness, uh, a piece of that definition also came about just because of cloud exit strategies, right? Right, um, right. Easy to rush in. Right. Um, I think some of the realization that the exit strategy from some cloud providers is not um, that attractive, especially when you start executing a strategy to move away from a cloud provider. So cloud smart is probably, that's a great term and it contains many different things in that. So you hit the nail on the head and that's what the, the model that we run at Myra Tool is hybrid Definitely on-prem for some applications, edge and other applications and cloud-based where we can be and where it makes sense. Right. No, it's it absolutely makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about Industry 3.0 and obviously now Industry 4.0, Fourth Industrial Revolution. A, a big chunk of that is typically associated with IoT, uh, sure. Internet of Things, or IIoT, Industrial Internet of Things. When you look at IoT from a Meyer tool perspective... What does modernizing your legacy OT systems look like? And then the second part of that question is we've had IT, traditional IT, and OT operational technologies on a collision course <laughs> where the walls are breaking down between them. Quite honestly, that's, that's the combination of those that gave us what we know today as IoT. Are you seeing those lines blurring within Meyer tool? And then how do you see it from the perspective of the industry, because it, depending on which organization you talk to, some are more mature, some have learned how to play along. Others, you know, they're sitting on either, on other side of the table saying, I'm more important than you are. We see our OT groups that had an initial struggle, one with connectivity. And then once we solved that in that 3.0 revolution, once we solved the connectivity with easier, cheaper Ethernet and wireless 5.0 and that brings to the table your IoT and IIoT. But you really get down to, from a manufacturing aspect, and most manufacturers have a vast array of different type of machines from different type of vendors. And for your OT groups, it just creates even more overhead to try to get leveraged data out of those systems. And especially now what we're seeing is with the IoT being such a industry buzzword to a degree, we're seeing most vendors are realizing that as a financial asset and starting to, hey, um, that's our data and we're going to keep that data and sell it back to you, which is a great business model and a revenue generator. But that's where Meyer Tool having the innovation types of DNA that we have in Teams Early on in my career at Meyer Tool, creating that edge device that bridged the gap between your OT departments and your IT and your business liaisons, shop owners, shop floor supervisors, you name it, nothing existed. So my team and I created a device, uh, Raspberry Pi based, easily obtainable and 
openly extensible to be used as an edge device between those OT machines, those PLCs, and all types of manufacturing devices. One, to give us a common platform that we could start collecting data, but realistically driving some key, what I'm gonna call now manufacturing KPIs, right? And I, I may even call those super manufacturing KPIs. Sure. Because realistically, as we move into this industrial 4.0, what are those real super manufacturing KPIs that's going to matter? The one driving one that we early on, as we started down this path, Terry, we were able to drive utilization upwards in some areas to 30, 40, 50, and 60%. And if you really think about it, not all manufacturing is million square foot facility. We're talking probably most manufacturing shops have under a hundred machines. Right. So realistically, and the passion that whenever I came to Meyer Tool and it's been through my past is how do we enable that manufacturer to drive utilization? Because the whole IoT thing started with we're gonna give you predictive, preventative maintenance. And that's all great, right? right? And I love that because if we can keep machines running longer, but really that super manufacturing KPI really gets down to, well, are we utilizing those machines? Because that drives bottom line revenue to whatever manufacturing business you're in. So Raspberry Pis, um, I have to say, I was kind of laughed at from some of the OT individuals, you can't put a Raspberry Pi out on a shop floor. Do you understand the, you know, environmentals? We've had a very, very low defect and failure rate on those things. And heck, they're $35. Just switch it out. <laughs> so um, it's really driven Meyer tools to a competitive advantage, uh, leveraging that technology. The second part of your question, it was a challenge early on until we the IT team did give some of that predictive, preventative maintenance things. Right. And if you think about that from an OT shop, wow, I don't have to invest in as much revenue and the, the scarce capital that manufacturers have into repairs because the IT team is now giving us tools to detect that before it happens. And that built credibility. There's still challenges between the teams, but realistically delivering some of those wins for that OT teams opens up avenues of conversations. So what can we do next? Right. And as a CIO, those make me smile ear to ear because, wow, now we're really solving businesses, business challenges, especially from keeping our machines running longer to driving utilizations. Again, it's challenging at times because, you know, sometimes in the support avenue you get a little bit of finger pointing back and forth between both teams well it's it you know it's ot but all in all you know those early wins really paved the pathway and to success for both teams to collaboratively work together and grow forward yeah you've got to find that quid pro quo i think when it for example can show those benefits to ot then ot becomes more invested in the process and now you're working as a single unit rather than two separate. Speaking of which, do you have any examples that you can share where how you've used the data off your IoT devices, you've correlated to lowering your, your cost curve, for example? 
Absolutely. Now we're really talking business drivers and things that hit the balance sheet. Cost is huge. Indirect cost. Let me tell you about some of the things that we do use these IoT edge devices for. The first one we talked about earlier is that predictive, preventative machine maintenance capability. For example, one of our machines has a part called, it's, it's a dresser motor. Replacement cost for that one part is $10,000. So really bringing a sensor in, the failure mode in that is it fills with fluid and it right. destroys the motor. So dragging a sensor into a GPIO port on the Raspberry Pi has allowed us to, before this motor fails and fills up with this fluid, detect that send a preventative alert out and get a machine maintenance technician out to address that before it fails. So that's been a really nice indirect cost recovery from these IoT devices. Another area that we see a lot of indirect cost from is quality. Imagine a machine that runs steady state at 5,000 RPM, let's say, right? We know if that machine drifts one a standard deviation, upper or lower spec limit, we know that we need to go and check that part. And what that allows us to do, and we we use a few machine learning algorithms in conjunction with this data that we receive to, to say, hey, we need to go and potentially check that part. What we're driving to is we do not want that part to leave the machine. We want it to be, if there's a quality issue, we want the action to take place right there. Right. Now, that inherently reduces cost because it's not traveled through a manufacturing facility or been shipped. So those are two great examples that jumps to the top of my mind, Terry, whenever I'm thinking about how these devices have, have lowered some cost. We're exploring a couple of new avenues that, you know, it's a little too early to talk about, but so hopefully the next time I can start telling you about some of the, the new exciting things that we have coming up with those devices. Yeah, I'd love to get an update on what you guys are doing. Let's talk a little bit about the thought leadership aspect of what you do. You actively post on places like LinkedIn on thought leadership within this space. And I know there was a, an article earlier in the year that I think it was something like smart manufacturing is not about technology. Can you elaborate a little bit about what seeing a title like that or an article like that, how does that resonate with you? I'm a technologist, Terry, and I can tell you are as well. But I, I think the stat I seen last week at a conference that I attended was, I mean, 77% of companies still use spreadsheets to make project investment decisions. So right. I take a backup from the technology and say, smart manufacturing is about process, people first, and then let's solve those kinds of problems that come out of that around smart manufacturing with technology. Because it has to be about stable, repeatable processes and a workforce that is skilled, trained, and empowered to make that step to smart manufacturing. So. Most of the things I post around is inherently around that type of avenue, especially whenever I think about smart manufacturing, where our country is, where the world is, as some of those challenges we have to solve first. And those are the two 
things that must be in place before you can even start talking and leveraging some of the smart manufacturing things that's happening today. Yeah, and and I think that same concept applies to not just manufacturing, but every industry. Since 2020, we we threw technology at trying to be able to continue to work and stay healthy and so forth. But once you went into stable state, then it's not just the technology that's going to allow you to remain adaptable and flexible and so forth. You also have to look at, you know, obviously the people aspect of it and then all the other elements that when they come together, make the whole thing work. And also technology not being a hammer looking for a nail. Absolutely. And Terry, in my career, just like you said, I've seen that happen all the time and businesses be held hostage because of the technology hammer, right? Right. Whereas I feel our role in information technology is understanding the business process first and then bringing the creative technology ideals to the game and to the table. Again, I use an old analogy of the tail doesn't wag the dog. And I've been in shops and around some some companies that, you know, the tail wagged the dog because it was all tech, 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 tech. And hey, you know, I love that part too. But if you really back up and take a look from the business side of things, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless we're rationally striving to solve the business problem that either, you know, reduce cost or gives us a competitive advantage or couple of those other big metrics that really drives the business. Sure. So the other concept, which is really interesting to me that I've heard you reference is something that you call the factory verse. Now it sounds like it's sort of metaverse esque, which we hear about all the time, but can you define what you mean by factory verse and elaborate how the use of technology empowers the types of things that you would find in a factory verse? All of us listen to the Zuckerberg interview and everything's metaverse, right? Right. But backing up before that, I think PWC had a statistic that really moved me was, is that like 2030, I think there's projected that 2.5 million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. alone will go unfulfilled. So letting that stew in my mind and then thinking about my kids playing Pokemon Go with augmented reality and all the advances that's taking place in the virtual reality and augmented reality space, I started thinking about this a little differently, like factory verse. And realistically, whenever I started thinking about this, Terry, it was two distinct kind of areas. One, how are we going to fill that employment gap, especially, you know, it's great to see the Biden administration releasing the national strategy for advanced manufacturing, some standards and a goalpost for us here in the United States, but that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of manufacturing work that's going to go unfilled. So thinking about that problem and, and some of the aging workforce in the manufacturing space, we are going to have to come up with a way, and I call it the factory verse, of one, from a training aspect, training new employees that's coming into the market, but also how do we get the next generation that's in high school right now and in grade school 
how do we get them excited? Like if you think about the Pokemon Go game, how how you had kids out running, you know, on sidewalks and street. I, I want to drive that same kind of excitement for that generation into manufacturing and thinking about augmented reality and some of that technology, one, just to, to train, but two, how can we, you know, really, really build applications and, and those scenarios that, that would get a grade school or in a high school or really like, Hey, I think I want to, I want to work in a manufacturing job. Right. That was the first part of the, the, the factory verse, Terry. The second part of that, if you really think about the progression of where we've been at an industry, 3.0, all the way into the industry 4.0, today, and from my some of my past employers, there's a metric of how much of the distribution center is outsourced all the way from zero to fully outsourced. Why can't the factory verse be an outsourced manufacturing facility that is maintained? Who cares in the world, but in a virtual factory kind of verse way using augmented reality, virtual reality technologies, because it, it seems like with the, with the unemployment and the workforce shortages, we're going to have to get really, really creative and, if Terry, your company who makes widgets, why do you want to worry about the manufacturing of that? Why can't you just, hey, I want someone else to manage all the manufacturing piece because I'm going to go focus on selling widgets. Right. I think there's going to be a shift in the near future. And I think we're probably going to have to be courageous enough to start thinking differently. And, you know, that's when I started Pointing that term factory verse. And I think there's more aspects that I haven't thought about. And I'd be curious to hear how you're thinking about it, but it's just going to set our path forward in this space. Yeah, that's really interesting, Vern. You know, just on metaverse alone, you know, I've been talking about this recently is, you know, when you talk to people about metaverse, most of them, the example that they know is what Meta and Zuckerberg has been talking about, which is the socialization, the gaming, you know, standing up virtual stores and things like that. But I think on the enterprise side, there's an enterprise metaverse, which really is, you know, a global digital twin. Sure. And I'm not advocating that there's only two, but I think that ties into what you're saying, because a lot of what we certainly see when I talk to other customers from a business perspective is, how can I simulate and or emulate what I have in the real world for a number of reasons, right? If I can create a digital twin and feed it with data from the physical world, then I can do things in that world that I may not be able to do because of scale in the physical world. And I think there is a sort of a Venn diagram of crossover sure. between that typical metaverse, the social gaming and so forth with this enterprise digital twin version and iterations in between, but it's still being worked out. But I think it's fascinating to kind of think through the types of challenges like having a skilled workforce and how you're going to be able to drive that where uh, that becomes a very interesting thing to kind of ponder. And not only the workforce, but how do you skill up that workforce whenever you have 
maybe the SME and the engineer that's in a whole different part of the country. Right. And again, you know, enabling that next generation of workforce in the manufacturing space, I think we're going to have to be flexible and really creative whenever we're trying to solve some of that problems. And I think the augmented reality and the virtual reality part of that gives an inherent coolness, right. <laughs> especially whenever I talk to my middle schoolers. That's just really cool. And working up on that to try to build some excitement for that age group. You know, we sometimes talk about the gamification of business processes. I think what you get in that younger generation is their adeptness in using augmented reality in games and things like that. And the dexterity it creates and other things, it allows you to get ahead of the learning curve when you then apply that same technology to a business process. And now you have somebody manning that technology, using that technology, who became very good at feeling comfortable using it because of something that they did within a game that they like to play. Absolutely. And and I recently tweeted about a, a study that came out that shows gamers statistically make better decisions than non-gamers. And I haven't shared that with my middle school boy yet. Um, and my wife and I were like, we're going to keep that one away from him a little while because we don't need to give him any more ammunition. But there's some really credible data out there that these generation and especially the, the gamification that you mentioned, Terry, that they make better decisions. Right. It's interesting. It certainly opens up new avenues to talent development, if you will, or talent acquisition. Absolutely. We talked a lot about what Meyer Tool is doing, and we talked about you know your view on the industry. There's a lot of discussion, obviously. You pointed on some of the, the things that the Biden administration is doing. We have the CHIPS Act that we've heard about. How optimistic are you in terms of manufacturing not just bringing manufacturing back to the United States, but in terms of manufacturing, you know, where it's been maybe lagging a little behind from innovation, where maybe we see kind of a hockey stick level of innovation to not only have manufacturing come back to the United States, but to see a level of innovation within those manufacturers that quite honestly could be unprecedented when you bring together all the technology and all the best practices. That's something that I think a lot about. Here in Ohio, we had the Intel factory. It was announced earlier in the year, broken ground. It's, it's so exciting, right, to see manufacturing come back, and especially with the Biden administration releasing the, the national you know, strategy for advanced manufacturing for the United States. And to see two of those actually address you know, some of the supply chain concerns that we had during the, the pandemic. I'm really excited and been doing some talks and things. But now if I take a step back and look at the economic climate that's going on right now, I'm just really fearful that, you know, there's going to be a slowdown just because those businesses in this economic environment are really challenged that those efforts to bring manufacturing back is probably going to slow down until our economic climate maybe improves a little bit. I think it's great to have an individual like yourself be a champion for the industry and not just a champion, but actually lead an organization that is sort of, you know, driving innovation within manufacturing by example. And I certainly look forward to having you on a future episode and hearing about the advancements. I too, and I'm, I'm optimistic about manufacturing. I think the potential that we have as a nation and, and within manufacturing the sky's the limit. I get the privilege within my own organization to 
play around with new technology and take new ideas and try to apply them to solve business challenges across industries. And to kind of correlate that with what I hear from individuals like yourself that are in the industry, it makes me very optimistic for the future. So, Hey, Terry, I just want to again say thank you. Uh, I really enjoy speaking with you. And the last thing I'm going to leave is, you know, for all my colleagues out there in the manufacturing space, just start with what you have today. It doesn't have to be a significant technology advantage, especially what we talked about earlier with processes and people. Just start with what you have and build that path forward. Again, Terry, just want to say thank you again. I really appreciate the opportunity to get on here and talk to you. Yes, thanks again, Vern. Looking forward to chatting again in the future. Thanks for joining another episode of Light Data Action. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. You can also follow us on Twitter at Light Data Action and for more Lumen news at Lumen Tech Co. As always, we'd love to get your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on the show. And I hope you'll join us next time for another conversation.